Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning and to be with you. I uh, have heard a ton about Redemption Peoria. This is the first time I've had a chance. Uh, I've been to the other location. First time I've been here, so I was excited to be here. Uh, my passage to teach today is the one that you just heard. And, and I watched as she was reading the passage, and you were fully engaged, and then you got less engaged. That was a long passage. That's what that felt like. So putting that together uh, is really tough in, in getting ready for this and how to teach this. And then you can't see it, but I have a, a huge clock right here that tells me I have... Uh, 25 minutes to do that passage. So I really worked on it. I knew that was going to happen. And I've had some, there's been a tough week. For, I've got a couple of physical challenges. I had open heart surgery, and that was a big deal. And then I had prostate cancer surgery, and that was a big deal. Um, but my biggest ongoing struggle is I have lupus. And, and I didn't know much about it. It's a disease. 90% of the people that get lupus are females age 18 to 35. So when I heard that, the first thing I thought was, I can't wait for my first support group meeting. This is going to be awesome. I can't wait to go to this thing. So it's inflammation. And by and large, it, it's migratory pain. And, and I, I have no idea when. And I got hammered Thursday, Friday, yesterday, this morning. I'm in a flare-up, and there's nothing I can do. The only thing I can do is take more steroids, and, and I'm not going to do that. And, and I tell you this for, t- for two reasons. When I feel like that, it hurts so much, it's hard to read and study and think. So putting the lesson together in a long, complicated lesson is especially tough. The second reason is... I want you to feel my pain, so I got that bar set real low as you're listening to this. And, and so I look at this, and here's what I did. If you look at the passage, if you have a Bible or an app open, you'll look that we're basically studying all of chapter 3 of the book of Acts. Now, to remind you, the furl, furl title of the book is the Acts of the Apostles. It's a book of transition. It's a book that moves us from the Gospels into the Epistles. When we start the book, Jesus is still on earth in his resurrected body. We know Peter and John, but we haven't yet met Timothy or Priscilla and Aquila or Paul, those giants. We meet them in the book of Acts. The key verse, and and I I presume that it was presented to you this way in the introduction, is chapter 1, verse 8. You will have power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now, we said the book of Acts is a continuation book. It's about the Acts of the early church, but it's still being, in a sense, written today. You're engaged in that. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 applies to you, you, those of us that know Jesus. 
you will be my witnesses. And then he gives us kind of a, a geographic uh, a center, Jerusalem, and then out from there. So in our context, here's what he's saying to us, Redemption Church, Peoria. You will be my witnesses in Peoria, in Maricopa County, in Arizona, in the United States, and throughout the world. Not, not each one of you individually, but us. That's the call that we have on our life. You're called to be a witness. And, 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 and I, I like to look, to look at it this way. My fear is when you say that you're called to be a witness, you think this gigantic task that, that requires something extraordinary, special, shots and a visa and, and a passport and, and you got to move. No, 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 no. The whole idea of the book of Acts and the Gospels and the New Testament is as you're living your life, you become a display case for the work of God. So if you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, familiar passage, go and make disciples of all nations. When we read that, we hear it this way. Go and make disciples of all nations. The way it's written in the original language is go and make disciples. Here's the idea of the normal Christian witnessing life. As you're going, as, as you're going to the coffee store, as you're going to school, as you're going to work, as you're going to the gym, as you're going to a soccer game, as you go, you're a witness. And that story of the book of Acts is about this happening. Well, when you get to Acts chapter 3, you have a historic, accurate event that's being portrayed for you in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And then Peter teaches on that. Here's what I want to do. I want to really unpack verses 1 through 10 and, and, and then give you a quick snapshot of what Peter does. And my goal is to apply it to you, to you, to you, to you, to us, to us. So I'm inviting you because there's no way. There's no way I can possibly apply this to each and every one of you where you are. I'm asking you to Photoshop yourself into this story. I'll try to, to help you see what I see there. But, but let's pray that, and hope that, that God does something. So we pick up the story, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. The, the Jewish day began at 6 a.m., concluded at 6 p.m. There were three designated times of prayer, 9, noon, and 3. They're in that 3 o'clock in the afternoon hour. They're at the temple. It's interesting. We don't want to make a big deal out of it. Interesting to note, they are now followers of Christ, but still at this point going to the temple. That's where the other believers were going to pray. It, it, it was their normal. They'd been doing it for years as a group. Verse 2, and there was a man who'd been lame from his mother's womb because, and he was being carried along with whom they used to set him down 
at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who are entering the temple. There's a guy. He is, by all medical standards, helpless, hopeless. And the way that he supported himself, I don't want to read too much into it, but my guess is, and probably supported the ones that are carrying him there, is he begs. There were three places where they would beg. The beggars would go. One would be to the home of a rich person. The other would be a heavily traveled highway, walkway, 24th and Camelback. The third place, the best place, was the temple. People were going. They were going in, cut me slack, to impress God. They were carrying some dough because they were going to make an offering. They were in a giving mood. So the environment was right. Every indication is that this man had gone to this place. It was his daily habit. So I, I want to stop. This is speculation, but it makes the story really interesting to me. Jesus had to have walked by this guy dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Jesus would go to the temple and pray. It always seems reasonable that Jesus would have seen this guy, but he never healed him. He was going to. wasn't going to be him, but it was going to be his way, his timing. It's the same in your life. You may be a little bit like this beggar going, Jesus, I need a miracle. Jesus, I need a miracle. Jesus, do something. And he's going, ah, my way, my time. We'll figure it out. See with me that this is, by all standards, an ordinary day. Everybody's doing what they do all the time. That's where we live. The phrase I use that I love called mastering the mundane. Most of what we do is the mundane. Get up, brush your teeth, comb your hair. Some of you, comb your hair, pick out something to wear, go to school, go to work, go to the gym, get something to eat, watch TV, go to bed, get up, brush your teeth, comb your hair. It's where we live. In the middle of this ordinary day, Jesus is about to do something extraordinary. And you never know when that's going to happen. It it could be today. I I don't know what that is that you need in that ordinary time. Jesus could show up right now. He's here, but in an extraordinary way. And and as this man is sitting there, in verse 3, he sees Peter and John, and they're going into the temple. And And he began asking them for alms. You got any spare cash? Got anything you can give me? And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze. That word gaze is the same word that's translated gaze in chapter 1, verse 10, when the disciples were looking as Jesus ascends into heaven. They fixed his his gaze on him. And and he said, look at me. Look here. Let me have your attention. 
And he began to give him his attention in verse 5, expecting to receive something from him. He wasn't expecting to receive something. He was expecting to receive money. Something. Money. That was his expectation. And the reason was, he thought that was his greatest need. I, I, I can't work. I need to support myself. I need this financial resource. And Peter says, and this had to kill the guy, verse 6, I I have no gold or silver. What I do have to give you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. You, You get the setting? He came with expectations. He misdiagnosed his problem. He knew he had a problem, but he thought his problem was he couldn't walk. And Peter's saying, I'm going to give you that, but, but you've got a bigger problem, and it's sin. Let's, let's go to, to, to you right now. You're here, and, and you may be walking in, and you may be saying, you know, there's problems. I've got problems. No problem that money couldn't fix, or school couldn't fix, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or a house, or a car, or a job. I got no problem with scholarship couldn't fix. And God understands that need, but he wants you to understand that's not your deepest problem. Peter says, walk, and look what happens. He seized him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Immediately, he's dancing around. In fact, that's where we see him in verse 8. He's walking and leaping and praising God. God did this extraordinary thing in his life. He's responding to it. He couldn't contain himself. My problem is I can't walk. Now all of a sudden, I can leap. I didn't get very high. I can jump. I can dance. I can move. And I'm thanking God. And look what happens in the midst of that. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they took note as he was the guy who was sitting there, the end of verse 10, and they're filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. See, that's what's going on in the normal life of those believers. Look at back at chapter uh, 2, verse 43. The church is meeting together, and they kept feeling a sense of awe, and there were wonders and signs that were taking place through the apostles. Something extraordinary was happening. It was awesome. There was wonder. The wonder was, uh, uh, what's going on? What is this? I can't explain it. There's amazement. These are a sign. The miracle is a sign. Here's the chance that, that, it, that, that we'll take. We'll look at the sign and begin to want the sign and not what it points us to. We want the gifts, but not the giver. There's a big billboard down on the freeway that says, Drink Coke. They're not asking you to go and look at the sign. They're trying to point you in the direction of the real thing, the Coca-Cola. And in the midst of this, Peter stands up and delivers 
a sermon. Verse 12, Peter sees this. He sees the people and he says, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Really important because as we look at the end of this chapter, there's a lot of Old Testament and a lot of reference to what an, a, a Jew would understand. Remember, we're still living in post-Passover Pentecost time. The city of Jerusalem's filled with Jews. Typical population of Jerusalem would be about 150, 200,000 people. At Passover, it would swell to a population of a million or more. So, so just get your arms around that. The population of Tempe is 161,735 people. The reconfigured capacity of Sun Devil Stadium is 56,232 people. So imagine Sun Devil Stadium filled. Now that's going to take a big imagination. Okay? Imagine Sun Devil Stadium filled. That was good. You got it. Okay? Imagine it. Now get this. Filled, emptied, filled, emptied, filled, empty, 15 times. Those people pushed out onto Mill Avenue with no restaurants, no hotels. That's the environment that you have in Jerusalem at this moment. Devout Jews. And Peter stands up, and he literally rocks their world. He, he, he said, the father... Uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob has glorified, verse 13, his servant. That word servant would in their mind trigger the idea of the Messiah. He's the one. Now look at, look at how he personalizes it. That you delivered, you disowned in the presence of Pilate. And when he decided to release him, you disowned the Holy One and you asked that Jesus would be put to death. And he was, verse 15, you put to death the Prince of Life, the one who God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. It's very similar to the sermon you looked at two weeks ago. Peter, in a sense, is a, is a one-trick pony. Crucifixion, resurrection. Crucifixion, resurrection. And he says, you know it's true. We're 2,000 years away. And we got people who are trying to go, oh, I can't prove the resurrection. You can't. Well, the people that were there didn't argue against it. At this moment, Peter says, let me give you the facts. Here's the facts. Jesus, he was the Messiah that you've been waiting for. He died. He died for your sin, and God raised him again, and he's alive. He goes right for you. He personalizes the guilt, you. Now we want to come into this auditorium. And we want to deal with you, me, us, all of us. We are all guilty. If you've lived any length of time, you've you got a sense the world is, is a mess. And the country's a mess. The state's a mess. The county's a mess. The city's a mess. Your family's a mess. You're a mess. 
and you have a problem, and it's called sin. You might not call it that. Uh, my daughter, I had a, a daughter, my second daughter. I call her a Gia kid. All you had to do is add water to her, and she could have raised herself. I mean, she was, and, and I, I know she's my kid, but she was like the perfect kid. And I used to go around with her over and over again about school and studying. And, and she would say to me, how did you ever get through school? And, and I said, well, I, I cheated. <laughs> Probably not the best role model for a dad. Well, I said, I cheated. And she said, and I said, well, well, stop. I wasn't a Christian. And she thought for a moment, and here's what she said. She was about 12. Did you hide when you did it? Did you sneak around? I said, yeah. She goes, then you know it was wrong. You're guilty. You may be here, you may not use the word sin, that's not in your vocabulary yet, but you got something you hide when you do it? You got something that you sneak around, you're embarrassed by, or something that you know is blatantly wrong? See, that's your fundamental problem. Your problem is not educational or financial or intellectual. Your problem is sin. Our problem is sin. That's what's wrong with the world. I can tell you how to make America great again. Convert everybody. That's how you make America great again. Real, genuine conversion. That's your deepest need. We're we're needy people. By nature, all of us. The Bible says we're children of wrath, children of disobedience. I was watching the check-in. This is, I said, my first time here. So I'm kind of scoping it out. And I love to watch. I'm a church guy. I love to watch the church come to life. I I, I like about 20 minutes ahead of time when, when the hardcores are here getting their coffee and the staff is here, and I'm watching the check-in, and there's three computer stands there, and there's a new family check-in. And so, I, I, I mean, I, I care about this stuff. So I'm watching it, and there's this little girl checking in. Had to be one of the cutest girls I've ever seen, probably yours, okay? And she's the sweetest-looking thing, and she's got her hair kind of pulled back, but it's already starting to fall down, and, and she's got this cute little dress, and she's got these pink leggings. You can tell I raise girls. And, and she's got these boots, and she's cute as can be. And she's standing there, and they check her in, and they put her in that room, and she's in that room. You know what she's doing right now? Punching the kid next to her. <laughs> Grabbing the kid's candy. Learning to say, mine, me, why? Because that's who we are by nature. This man thought his problem was he couldn't walk. That was a symptom of a deeper problem, and it's sin. And the solution to that sin is Jesus. What do you do with that? What do you do with that guilt? Let me give you what I think are are four options, at least the four that I see. All of a sudden, maybe at this very minute, you you come to the realization, I'm guilty. 
one thing can happen, and that is that guilt can overwhelm you and you move to despair. The absolute, and, and, I'm, and, and I've thought about it a bunch. I, the saddest conversation I've ever had with a person was with a man who was in a Bible study I was teaching. He came up afterwards. I would guess he was about 40 years old. Um, he, he apparently needed new shirts because he had T-shirts that didn't quite fit. He was pouring out of them all over, all muscled up and, and built up and just a stud-looking guy. And he comes up. It was like looking in a mirror for me. Uh, uh, and, and he comes up. And he said, uh, you talked about forgiveness. And I said, yeah. And he said, God could never forgive me. And this big guy started crying. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody cry any harder. He was just heaving, sighing, crying. And he said, God could never forgive me. And I said, yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what he does. And I, I gave him the best answer I had. And he walked away and he said, God could never forgive me. And he walked away. It was the saddest encounter I've ever had. Never saw him before, never seen him since. And that might be you. You might look at this and go, I know God forgives some people, but not me. And I'm here to tell you he does. But one response is despair. The second response is to kind of explain it away. Yeah, I'm bad, but you don't know him, you don't know her. One night in my old day, my, my big deal was, was, was drinking. Um, and I'm in a bar one night with a guy, and I'm feeling really low. I'm having one of these I'm not worth anything moments. And I said, I, I, I'm worthless. He said, that's not true. You have great value. And I said, nah, I'm worthless. He said, Tom, that's not true. I said, really, you think so? Here's what he said. I'll never forget it. Tom, you can always be used as a bad example. He said, I tell my wife all the time, I'm bad. I'm not as bad as Tom. So that might be what you do. I'm bad, but not as bad as her, not as bad as him. Here's the third response you can have at this moment. And that is, you're going to clean up your own act. You sense there's a problem, you're going to do something. That's why Marie Osmond, between the end of December and all January, makes a bazillion dollars. I'm Marie, and I lost 50 pounds. Because she knows in that calendar year, that time is when I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to get it together. We're right at the time where some of you are coming out of that. You were going to stop this, do this, not click this, go over there, but, but you're done. You tried, it didn't work. That's called religion. Here's the answer. You read the passage. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Okay, now Peter said you're guilty, so let me personalize this. Christ died for people like you. He went to the cross for people like you. You can find forgiveness. This is huge. You can find forgiveness. That sounded presidential there for a minute. You can find forgiveness now. Cleansing now. 
redemption now. You don't have to carry that guilt around anymore. Jesus died so that you can be forgiven. That's not the end of the story, by the way. That's the first step of the story. My experience, and I've been doing it a long time, is that at this moment, a few of you, I I, I would hope a bunch, but a few of you are kind of going, I'm totally screwed up. I'm so lost, I got no clue what he's talking about. I got more questions than I do answers. If that's you, don't waste this moment. When the service is over, find the people that are on staff and talk to them about what it means to be a Christian, to know Christ is our Lord and Savior. For others of you, that's something that took place long ago. That's not the end of the journey. It's the beginning. Now you are a witness. It may be. I'll I'll tell you. Let me check. Okay, Okay, I got to go. But uh, that's just a beginning for you. you, Remember that first, like the guy when God first saved you and you're leaping, you're running around campus trying to tell everybody what's happened. You go into the office, here's what God did, here's what God did. But over the years, that's kind of moved away. This is the moment, this is the day to ask God to rekindle that fire in you again. That on fire spirit for him. Ordinary day, ordinary guys, extraordinary God. And he's right here, right now, working in your life. Let's let's take a a minute or two before the the team comes back and leads us in our closing worship and communion. Take a minute or two and ask God, ask his spirit to open our eyes, to see this truth, to work in our life, to do something extraordinary. So you quietly pray to him.